Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted to talk to Professor Connor Geerty. You are most welcome, sir. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Lovely to have you on, sir. Connor is a professor of human rights law at the London School of Economics. His academic research focuses primarily on civil liberties, terrorism and human rights. Now, he recently wrote a hard hitting article titled Who Will Stand for Universalism in the tablet, a, a, a Catholic international weekly review based published in London. It expressed a strong principled opposition to Israel's flagrant breaches of international law and how he believes Western liberalism, which is the, the ruling belief system of, of uh, America and Europe, is turning into, quote, a monster. Um, so could you explain a bit more why you wrote uh, this very hard hitting article? What's interesting to me, Paul, uh, is that what seems to me very straightforward is uniformly regarded by people as hard-hitting. Uh, many people have said courageous. Mm. So, so what exactly do we mean by that? Because mm. let's look at it. Israel is practically coterminous with, identifiable with the United States at all times. They have led the construction of a liberal democratic world in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. That is the United States. Yeah. They've led it. They've been, however, themselves often withdrawing from the implications of this. So there's already been double standards in the liberal world that we've all grown up in, in the global north and the west already. But nevertheless, we have this range of international human rights, which has been broadly speaking, supported by the United States from the United Nations onwards through the various conventions and so on. Now, the United States, as I say, see themselves as standing outside some of the inconvenient stuff, but they nevertheless have gone along with the creation of this framework of liberal morality, a kind yeah. of ethical dimension to universality. And it has produced various advances, which are included among them, are the fact that you can be prosecuted for war crimes, for crimes against humanity, and for genocide. And these are all quite specifically defined in the key charter, which is the Rome Charter, which sets up the International Criminal Court. It's all straightforward. And what we have seen with the responses of Israel to the atrocities, unquestioned, unquestioned atrocities on 7 October 2023, has been in blatant, blatant breach of a whole range of international agreements, of a whole range of institutional safeguards against the destruction of the Palestinian people, and includes, if one is to take at face value, the remarks made by the political and military leadership in Israel, genocidal intent. Mm. It's that bad. Details, mm. you know, we can go into. But mm. it's absolutely straightforward. And mm. yet to point this out, and I pointed it out in the tablet, but I've also done a longer piece 
in the London Review of Books on war crimes, to point this out is somehow brave, courageous, hard-hitting. If it were Russia, it would be absolutely straightforward. Yeah. If it were, if we flash back to 1994, if it was the Hutus who had decided, instead of hacking the Tutsis to death, had decided to bombard them with weapons supplied by Russia, we would be hysterical in our denunciations. Instead, mm -hmm. we have not just silence, we have from the United States active support. Mm -hmm. So the point in my tablet piece, to circle back to that, was let none of them ever again say a single thing about the morality of their conduct anywhere. Let none of them ever again criticize countries for breaching what they choose to call international human rights. Their credit has completely collapsed. That's the point of the article. Well, indeed, and, and it is very, very courageous and heart-hitting. I, I, I agree with both of those uh, descriptions. But you, you, you talk about, in a sense, that, that the West no longer has uh, is seen to have leg moral legitimacy when it pronounces on, on human rights and morality and, and, and the rule of law and so on. I mean, is this is this a turning point in our global awareness of what's going on? But where now the the so-called global South, perhaps, uh, and other nations are, 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 and the populations even in the West, are they now seeing this double standards inconsistency and drawing the conclusion that we've lost moral legitimacy here? We, we, we can no longer speak with moral clarity. Is, is it really that serious, do you think? I think it's, if I may say so, for a reason I'll now give you even more serious. Right. There's two layers to what the consequences of this engagement in Palestine will be. The first is what you've described. If you want, without uh, being uh, too glib about it, the, the clarity of the double standard now collapses the moral authority. If by moral authority we mean a belief in, let's call human rights what they are, yeah. the equal value of every person in the yeah. world. That's, That's right. clear. I don't think that can ever be recovered. I don't mm -hmm. think they can ever posture again in that way. The colonial, to include England in this, and the neo-colonial, post-colonial, to include America. That's true, but it's worse. It's worse. This well, is what, what I think. Why is it worse? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why it's worse. Because I think we're seeing a new brutalization in the international sphere. Mm. I think what we're seeing is no longer an agreed moral standard in international relations from which countries depart and for which they are criticized. I think we're seeing a collapse in the standard. So we have a normalization of brutality. Now, mm. there's been brutality, you know, my goodness, but there's been reaction and protest to it. There has been a Sudanese civil war, which was all over the West's agenda for years. Nobody even knows what's going on now. We've had Venezuela invade a country in patent attempt to take large amounts of oil-rich parts of that country. Nobody even knows what's going on. We've seen a destruction of Yemen. I could go on. I could mm -hmm. go on. Mm -hmm. And that is without even mentioning Ukraine. So my real worry is that this becomes quite normal. And it's linked to climate change. It's linked to refugees. It's linked to the various challenges that are developing around the world, 
And we do not believe human rights have any kind of answer. So I think that's a worry. The collapse of the moral system. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. That has guided international relations, uh, which has been a double standard, hypocritical, but nevertheless, it's collapsed, meaning there are no double standards. Nobody cares anymore. Hmm. Uh, can I push back slightly on what you've said there, as, as if this is a new thing that's emerging, this new um, uh, monster, uh, as, as, as you, you call liberalism, turning into a monster. Is it not the case that many, many people, particularly in the so-called global south, have always seen the world this this way, uh, the West this way? Back to you know the, the the bombing of you know Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of the Second World War, but with nuclear weapons, you know t- targeting civilians. Vietnam, of course, uh, and and the invasion of Iraq and uh, Afghanistan and so on. And so, one might argue this is not a terribly new thing. This that uh, this mismatch between the rhetoric of the West, respect for human rights and. Uh, liberalism and the reality on the ground in most of the world has always been apparent to many people. So is it not possible to question the the, the novelty or the newness of this? Or, I mean, in what sense is it really new, do you think? I I think you're you're absolutely entitled to make that point by way of implicit criticism. Let me answer it by telling a story. I I used to be incredibly sceptical of the international so-called order. I used to say the sorts of things you've said extremely easily, almost glibly from my tongue, criticizing it all. Uh, And then, you know, uh, when I went for a job as the director of a center for the study of human rights, the first question in the interview is, why you don't believe in human rights? Why have you applied for this job? Mm -hmm. So I was with you. Now, what has happened over time isn't just that I've become pale and old and established. (laughs) I've seen, although that has happened, I've seen the, the value of an international order which is half attended to, being better than no international order at all. Mm, So in one of my electronic books, I wrote a piece, Don't Be Too Hard on Hypocrisy. And my point was, hypocrisy is evidence of the desire to hide something. And so therefore, in a way, there's still a desire not to be caught. Now, increasing, so that was true even during the period you describe of double standards, etc. And the Americans are always like that and so on. My concern now is that 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 has now collapsed. And so... You, right. you don't even fight now for a double standard with which you can live because you can point out the double standards like the wonderful Noam Chomsky often did and Edward Said often did. And you make progress through embarrassment. We have literally got at the moment an American Secretary of State who in the same week can authorize extra statutory ammunition deliveries to Israel in a state of war and meet the key leaders of the human rights community to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights at the same time. And they go along, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty and various other people. And Mr. Blinken is able to tweet how much he enjoyed. And there's a first class looking lunch being served by various people in a classy looking room, how much he enjoyed celebrating human rights. And it might even have been that morning or that evening 
when he signed the, the, the transfer without congressional authority of large amounts of ammunition for Israel to continue its war. And the Blinken administration, uh, led by, you know, Mr. Biden, has, has decided not to apply the standards it applies to every other jurisdiction mm. with regard to transfers of weaponry, whether they're committing war crimes. And they've decided not to do it because the obvious answer would be, of course, they are. So, so this is this is a collapse. This is a collapse. No, now, it's a fair point. Yeah. You know, and similarly and relatedly, when we see uh, this ludicrous melodrama playing out in Britain over Rwanda, mm. the the British government is not yet able to say, shoot them in the boats. Not yet able to say that. But the whole mood of government mm. would suggest that that's the obvious thing to do. So we, we try and stop them landing. We make life hell for them. We, we, we might end up close to what the Greeks, without authority, uh, and only anecdotally, so I can't level this allegation against the state, mm. pushing boats out of the territorial water into another person's territorial water and boats collapsing. You know, we're not far away from the same level of brutality that mm -hmm. we now see with the United States' support for Israel. So that's, I suppose, my riposte to your extremely fair criticism. Okay, well, that's that's a, a very insightful response, actually. I, I, I consider that to be a fair a fair response. There, there is the, the inevitable question, which which shades into this accusation of anti-Semitism, which is ubiquitous now. If one criticizes Israel, um, Israel's uh, actions in in the occupied territories in Palestine and Gaza, um, but the question is, why is the United States? thousands and thousands of miles from the Middle East, so totally identifying itself with this small little country in the Middle East to such an extent that it's willing to destroy its international reputation globally, clearly, uh, in your powerful words. Why is it doing this? I mean, it has an existential... It's like Germany as well and many countries yeah. in Europe. They seem to have this same um, almost religious, fanatical kind of identification with... Everything Israel, how you must stand with them, regardless of what they do. This is uh, really weird, isn't it? Why stand with another country unconditionally when they're at war? Why? I, 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 I might. We might come back to anti-Semitism, but let's me let me start with and possibly just deal at this stage directly with your point. It's a crucial one. It's utterly unfathomable to me. Here we have an extremely efficient governmental organization, Mr. Blinken and Mr. Biden. And they've, it could be said, even with regard to the evacuation from Afghanistan, which was horribly controversial, but there was no easy way to do it. It could be said they have put very few feet wrong to misuse a cliche in international affairs. And we all know that Biden can't stand Netanyahu, who likes him. He's a dreadful man. Everybody knows that. He's, 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 he's on his knees in Israel when this thing happens. Right. And yet, I'm only rephrasing your question, though I have an answer. There is this appalling blank check. So what's mm. my answer? It's twofold. And one of these applies to the Labour Party in the United Kingdom. So I'll mention that if I may. Yeah. It's twofold. Yeah. One is, obviously, that the first thing he thought about 
was, let's face it, Zionist support within the United States as a matter of political importance. It has, it has a, a form which is very big financial backers. It also has cultural leadership. It can make life extremely difficult. I think that's analogous. I'll get to the second in a moment. That's analogous to Mr. Starmer's catastrophic decision not to support a push for a ceasefire. Keir Starmer spent three years of his life making the party attractive to the Jewish vote. That Jewish vote had been greatly alienated, even the left Jewish people, by the Corbyn perspective on international affairs, to put it mildly. Yeah. And he couldn't bear to lose all that, all that work by having various Zionist-inclined Jewish MPs and the Jewish Chronicle and others lead uh, 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 an angry repast to him. Now, we both know that there are many, many magnificent Jewish people who are absolutely clear in their opposition to Zionism. We both know that there is a massive distinction between a Zionist position and a Jewish position. The two are different, Zionist, political Zionist at any rate. So both of them share that desire to maintain a political support from mm. a crucial electorate. And each faces an election next year. Now, I think they made a catastrophic mistake, both of them, because they didn't anticipate, and Biden's the only one that matters. The Labour Party is only relevant because we're in this little parochial environment as we speak to each other, England. Biden is going to lose, I think he's going to lose the next election over this. It looks like he needs energy from the younger people to vote. Mm -hmm. it's, it's well known. The, the younger people need to get out. Now, would I even vote for him? He mm -hmm. is colluding in crimes against humanity, probably, genocide, mm -hmm. probably, and definitely war crimes. What, mm -hmm. what energy would I have, even though he's manifestly the best choice for the American domestic market? The second reason. The second reason, I think it's persuasive, and I think it's unique to Joe Biden. And he's an old guy. He formed his political opinions in the early late 60s and the early 70s. This has rebounded hugely to Ireland's advantage, my country, because he thinks of himself as Irish. He's like a little old Irish-American on a bus in Dublin visiting the Book of Kells in 1974, <laughs> wow. which we love. And the British have had real trouble over that. Right. But he's also massively, unequivocally pro-Israel in a sort of early 1970s kind of way. And he has probably called it personally quite early on. And in doing so, has gone with his emotions, has gone with his solid pro-Israel position over decades. Now, mm. you and I are both, as you know, Paul, very young men. We have no idea what it's like when your arteries harden and your views deaden. And I just find it incomprehensible other than as a kind of emotional response. And, and then in a way it's part political, part emotional, but it's now impossible to get out of. It's incomprehensible they haven't rolled back. Mm. That the idea that they would deny some fanatical settler who's murdered a whole lot of Palestinians an opportunity to come to America. That's the level, that's the level of their, of their hard line. That mm -hmm. some awful person 
who's responsible for mass killing in the occupied territories wouldn't be able to visit America. Well, my God, that's frightening. That's the level. That's the level of their hard line. It's beyond belief. And then we're all told about these private phone calls and all that rubbish. Netanyahu, Netanyahu doesn't care. He thinks he has America, whatever he does. And so far, he's been proved right. Mm-hmm. No, very interesting. And it's interesting you, you touch on Biden's identification with Ireland or the Irish, because in your article, uh, you write, uh, and I quote, thousands of civilians, including children, are dying. And criticism of Israel's flagrant breaches of international law is dismissed as, quote, anti-Semitism. Meanwhile, the states of the global north go along with it, their leaders falling over themselves to guarantee Israel's carte blanche, this blank state you mentioned, for its transparent ethnic cleansing. And then you say, a a very revealing note here, I thought, with a thrill of pride, I note, you say, my home country's resistance here. But then Ireland is that rare thing, a country of white people who have a memory of what centuries of occupation feels like, end quote. Now, could you tell us who occupied your country, the Republic of Ireland, and why this historical memory has led Irish solidarity with the Palestinians? I I, I was interested. I was in Ireland at the weekend. We're doing this on a Monday, and I've just come back. Or Tuesday, rather. Tuesday, yeah. And it's been amazing to see how common sense in Ireland is pro-Palestinian. Mm, so, mm. so it's it's across the board. Right. Why? Yeah. Well, there's an interesting distinction here with regard to the whole island of Ireland. First of all, like Palestine, we were partitioned. Uh, and were we colonized? No. We were initially brought under British, English and then British control. And then in 1800, we were made part of the United Kingdom. That is unusual. Right. No colonial territory in the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries was made part of the home base, the United Kingdom. But we were effectively colonized, effectively colonized. So I'm qualifying the the term colony, but I will justify it. Bunches of of British English people came over, took the land, threw the Irish out and ran the place. Now, our partition produced a as it were, a putative Israel and a Mm. putative Palestine. Israel is the north of Ireland with the majority of settler communities, the Church of Ireland, Protestant communities that had been been imposed on Ireland in the early 17th century and had remained distant from the rest of the population, had contrived their own world, their own space. And and so that partition was was not dissimilar. They had a a small majority. Now, the Republic of Ireland became kind of, as it were, Palestine. So we survived. In the north of Ireland, in 19... uh, And this all happened in 21-22. They didn't cause a Nakba. They didn't force the 40% of the Irish population out. They didn't invade the Republic of Ireland. None have they ever done. But they're still there. And like the Jewish settlers in what we now call Israel, they have nowhere else to go. So they're defining themselves in their identity as Irish, but not Irish the way the Irish, as it were, are. Mm -hmm. So we have an intractability to the Northern Ireland problem for a similar reason. But the Mm -hmm. levels of violence were never, ever remotely what they are in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And that is because, in my opinion, 
is because the north of Ireland never became a separate state. It's right. always been within the United Kingdom. And it's a great tribute to United Kingdom statecraft. Now, in this chaotic time of collapse, hard to remember, how good British statecraft was in keeping a lid on a potentially horrific Yugoslav-type situation in Northern Ireland from the 1960s onwards. Never happened. Never happened. Now, therefore, I think it's legitimate to think of Ireland as having experienced the master from outside for centuries. Right. And the master from outside never succeeded in winning over the population. True. Because the population know what it's like to be dispossessed. And that's an understanding to which I was alluding in the piece. Right. And it's what causes Irish people to link to the Palestinians in the way that actually they strongly did with regard to South African apartheid. Right. The Irish were leaders in the anti-apartheid struggle before it was fashionable. When, when, when Mrs. Thatcher was declaring Mandela Kader Asmal, a great old friend from years ago, now just sadly died, was a lecturer in Trinity in law, but he became a minister in the Mandela government. You know, there was so there's a strong tradition uh, of 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 subaltern identification. Right. Subaltern identification. I like that. Very, very concise and pithy uh, way, way, of, way of putting it. Um, Thank you for that. It's fascinating. And just I've got a question that's nagging me about this term anti-Semitism. And I mean, it's legal definition, because me and my naivety, I thought anti-Semitism would have meant, you know, someone who hates Jews because they're Jews or uh, verbally or physically attacks them or maligns them as as a, as an ethnic group, if you like. But that's not the definition now, or at least it's not the only definition now. It seems to be much more expansive to include any criticism of Israel itself, that's certainly the case, I think, in Germany, officially now, any criticism of Israel is, is, is by definition anti-Semitic, as it is in America with the recent is it con voting Congress that seemed mm -hmm. to be saying something similar. But my question to you is, in terms of us in the UK and in Europe and so on, um, what is the is there an official definition of anti-Semitism and what is it? Uh, and, and in your view, does it have any serious credibility? Well, I, I, I'll answer this by by referring to a book I've got coming out in May. I'm not glibly name-checking this. It's a book about the history of anti-terrorism law. Right. And one of the extraordinary achievements by Israeli diplomacy was to persuade us all that the Palestinian liberation movement were not freedom fighters, but they were terrorists, mm -hmm. and they were global terrorists. Yeah. And the language of terrorism has done tremendously good work, let's face it, for supporting Israel in its battle against its own communities that are not Jewish, the occupied territories in Gaza. And so they got into the habit in, and I, you know, this sounds uh, facile, but I've it all in the book. They got into the habit of castigating their opponents as terrorists or terrorist sympathizers. Right. Now that ha still works for Hamas. It still works for organizations that argue for an end to Israel. But it ceased to have its usual ring when dealing with, I'll give you an example, Ben and Jerry ice cream, Ben and Jerry ice cream. Ben and Jerry ice cream decided not to, uh, not to trade in the occupied territories. And they were accused of being, of being terrorists, sympathizers. So 
So it's kind of stupid, you know. So okay, it was, it's, 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 no, it's no Hamas, is it? In the West it's, Bank, it's not Hamas. You know, we're selling bloody ice cream. Excuse my language here, Paul, in this religious blog. Mm. But they, I think, began to see, or, 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 or sort of almost by a process of community good sense, this wasn't working anymore. Right. And so what began not so long ago is the move towards the language of anti-Semitism. So my my interventions in this have produced criticisms on the on the web and in a letter to the tablet saying I'm I'm anti-Semitic. They don't say I'm a terrorist. Interesting. That's gone. That used to be it, but not anymore because it's absurd. But the, there is no legal definition within this jurisdiction where we are, the United Kingdom. Really? But there's a sort of adopted general ge definition, which, hey, presto, equates criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. So, so they pulled it off. There's huge debate about the partisan nature of the definition of anti-Semitism mm. agreed by some self-appointed community on the international plane. There was a brilliant critique of it by the Jewish former judge Stephen Sedley in the London Review of Books some years ago. So, of course, and this is back to my general view about terrorism, there's no true meaning to what anti-Semitism is. There's no, there's no meaning one can grasp by being super clever. It's like terrorism. It's, it's in the eye of social forces. Right. So there's a battle on to expand the idea of anti-Semitic beyond Jewish. And, you know, you and I both know already Semitic, the only, the only, they're not the only Semitic people in the world, you know. Uh, but, Arabs are Semites, obviously. Are Semites. So to be anti-Arab is to be anti-Semite, but let's not even go there. Yeah. There's, there's a battle going on to, to make normal the idea that if I say that Israel should be restricted to its United Nations borders, that I'm anti-Semitic. There's a battle going on to make that an anti-Semitic remark. Now, my opinion is that's, preposterous of course it's my opinion but they want me as it were to be on the defensive i need to then consult my conscience over my anti-semitism mm. uh, a, a person who's an academic lawyer responded to that sentence that you've put in by saying everybody knows she says the irish are the most anti-semitic country in europe really but it's just it's nonsense you know i mean the irish are one of the few places with no right-wing anti-semitic party but it's it's a talking point that has been developed mm -hmm. to try and explain Irish criticism of Israel. Above all, and, and the similar point is made in a letter to the tablet this week, I would say all that, wouldn't I? Because I'm anti-Semitic. So instead of dealing with the actual facts, it's, oh, he's, he's, he's not made that up because they can't deny now it's going on. That's what's fascinating. They can't deny it's going on, but they try and divert. They try and divert. They try and divert. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so I think anti-Semitic is is a contrivance, and the effort is on now to make us feel that we are anti-Semitic when we criticise Israel, which is preposterous. Yeah, I mean, I went on that that big march several weeks ago in London, the, the pro-Palestinian march, um, uh, the, the notorious march that was criticised by a certain Home Secretary for being. Uh, a hate a hate march um yes and i i was struck uh, obviously i wasn't aware of her comments prior to uh her having made them after the march but i was struck by how how many families were there how many uh how the good nature there was no i didn't sense a great kind of anger in in, in a negative antagonistic way there was just great concern and uh, and and empathy for the 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 palestinians what was going yeah. on in gaza 
and you know, young people, children, families, mothers. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was actually a very a very convivial, civilized, if I can put it that way, uh, occasion. And I was quite shocked when the British government, you know, the Home Secretary no less, and the Prime Minister, or um, also later, condemning this march as anti-Semitic and full of hate. And I thought, but that's simply a f- not true. It, it's fake news. And I, I actually quite hurtful that the go- that the official uh, our government should malign and slander its citizens who are concerned about ethnic cleansing and genocide in Gaza. And I thought, this is such a weird world that we now live in, where a concern for people's lives is characterized as hatred. And I still find it difficult to get my head around that because it's so contrary to reality that it's just almost unbelievable. Yes, I mean, the the great credit there is to uh, Metropolitan Police Commissioner, who refused to initiate efforts to ban the entire march. Mm, uh, now, Mr. Rowley yields to none in his concerns uh, about uh, terrorism. He's not shy about that. No. But he's a, he's a police officer who respects the law. So he knew both that there was no basis for banning that march, and furthermore, that to ban it would be so futile it would create the very disorder that was intended to be prevented. Mm. Uh, and the law... This thing that the government objects to so much, the old-fashioned thing called law, required a, a, a request to come from him. And he stood up to them. Mm-hmm. And he actually must have spent that day thinking he was one knife attack away from resignation. Yeah, yeah. And I really take my hat off. I've never met him. I've been very critical of him in the past. I take my hat off to him. Mm-hmm. So here we have a collision between reality and fantasy. And in mm-hmm. this country, it started with Brexit where you think you can legislate for your wishes and that it'll happen. Mm-hmm. And we have got a political leadership which is slave to its passions, which are ill-informed and uninterested in any discussion. And we have law, which represents reality. And we see it played out again with Rwanda, where there is this absurd statement in a bill currently before Parliament, but it may fail in the next day or two, which says that Rwanda is a safe country. Fact. So that if Rwanda plummeted back into civil war, the courts would still have to say that it's a safe country. In other words, that parliamentary sovereignty allows us to declare the earth is flat. Parliamentary (laughs) sovereignty allows us to declare that Britain is the greatest country in the world. It's Mm -hmm. fatuity rooted in an emotionalism that is derived from the primacy of stupidity in the aftermath of Brexit. Gosh. Very, very strong words. Uh, you mentioned your bit over- <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I, I do get rather carried away. I'm going to no, have no. to, I'm afraid, I'm going to have to head off shortly. Of course. So we need to wrap yeah, it we'll, up. We'll conclude here. I just wanted to mention uh, the book you alluded to, the full title, your next book, Homeland Insecurity, The Rise and Rise of Global Anti-Terrorism Law, uh, which I think is due to be published um, in, did you say May or March? Yeah, or- May in 2024 by Polity Press. I, I'm very pleased with the book, I have to say. Good. Uh, yeah, I, I very much. I'm, I'm very. And now you've explained it in more detail. I'm actually very interested in reading it. Um, and I'll add a link uh, in the description below to the uh, tablet article um, a couple, couple of weeks ago. It's definitely worth reading. And you mentioned was it the New York Review of Books? No, the, the London Review of Books. Oh, the London, is, the London uh, Review of Books. It's superb on on Palestine. Superb. Excellent. And and that there's no um, paywall. Uh, there, there, they they put some articles up free. I can't remember if mine is. Right. Okay. It was definitely worth uh, having a look at. So, so well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Professor Connor uh, uh, Gerty, for your time. Okay. I know you're a very busy man, and um, we'll we'll certainly follow 
uh, your, your work with uh, interest as you as you as you write more articles and books in the future. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me on. It's a terrific, uh, terrific uh, blog you do. So thank you, Paul. Take care. Save big on brunch for mom. All in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for one twenty nine each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine a pound. All with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.